All right, well, good morning, church. Um, today seems like it'd be like a real layup for someone who's trying to preach, right? You have Father's Day, so you could talk about the love of God our Father, how he, you know, and how um, father, earthly fathers can love like the Heavenly Father, except when the Heavenly Father is called the mother hen, and then he's not a father, but he is. Um, so that could be an easy one. And then you have Juneteenth, and like Preston talked about, you could preach about the gospel setting us free from our sin, and we could talk about the sin of slavery or the faith of enslaved persons throughout history. There's so many things to talk about, and I've chose to do none of those things. Um, so as um, every year, the deacons, we pick a, a next spiritual step, something that we're going to try, and, or, or a few of them, um, some things we're going to try and work on that year to take the next step in our relationship with God, to uh, learn more about him, something like that. And one of the things I've been doing is looking at, you know, I've born and raised in church. Uh, when I was a little kid, we went to a, a Lutheran church, and then my parents moved us to a Methodist church, and I grew up there and went to church camp and was in FCA at school and did some Bible club stuff, and then went to college and was involved with, uh, with crew um, and went to a local church, and now I'm here and, you know, just been in church my whole life, and there's been things that I've been told that I don't know if they're true or not, but I believe them, and so I've been looking into those things and trying to really understand my faith and what I believe about different topics. And in the course of doing that, a lot of the books I've been reading have been pointing us back to the Sermon on the Mount over and over and over again. And uh, the deacons know this because I, when I did my deacon devotional, I, it was on passage from the Sermon on the Mount. So I've really just been sitting there in the Sermon on the Mount and reading it over and over since like January. Um, and different things stick out to me every time and different things that are challenging to me every time. So today we're going to be in um, Matthew 5, which is the Sermon on the Mount, um, verses 38 through 48. And uh, I'm just going to read through it first, and then we're going to take it all apart, and we'll do some different things with it. So um, if you want to turn your Bibles to Matthew 5, 38, and I'll uh, start reading. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on, the, on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the, uh, on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So this is a tough one. Um, and it's tough because... I mean, Jesus talks about some situations that we aren't in, but he talks about some situations that we encounter pretty frequently. Um, so we're actually going to start looking at this in verse 43, and I think you'll understand why. And I, I feel justified in this because when Luke talks about this in his book, he puts in this order, so I feel like I'm okay. Um, so verse 43 is the, you, we start to see these, uh, you have heard that it was said, blank, but I tell you this, blank. And uh, Jesus uses these six different antithetical statements, these opposite statements, uh, to show us how to live a better way, to show us how the kingdom is supposed to be set up. So he talks about murder and lust and divorce and retaliation and how we relate to our enemies. 
And oftentimes the things that people have heard it said um, were parts of the Old Testament law. These are things that show up in the Old Testament that people in the time would know exactly where they came from. In this instance, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, that half of it, we know where it comes from. It's Leviticus 19.18. It says, do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. God is specifically telling us that the people that are around us, we need to love them. And I feel like that's kind of a thing that we just understand. Like, yeah, I love my family. And for some people, family is hard, but generally, people love their family. They love the people they're with. You know, you don't hang out with people that you don't like, generally. Um, But then he has this other part. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And we have no idea where that comes from. Scholars argue about this one. Um, And some people I was reading said that it seems like just kind of the logical jump. Well, if I'm loving the people that I'm around, the people I'm not around, I'll do the opposite with because I'm not around them. Um, But Jesus is telling us in in verse 44, but I tell you, love your enemies. And we're going to stop there. Um, We'll call this 44a. Uh, Love in the Bible shows up. There's there's seven different types of Greek love. The word word for love is, there's seven different ones in the Greek. But four of them are mostly used, and they're the four you only ever hear about. Um, And when I was reading about this, too, I was like, oh, we only hear about these because C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves, and he doesn't talk about the other three. But these ones show up the most. So there's philia, eros, storge and agape. And philia is like an intimate, authentic friendship. So, um, I mean, you could have, a lot of these can fall in different categories. So you can have philia with your spouse, um, but also like I have philia feelings toward Samuel Paternoster or Pastor Preston. They're my buddies. You know, we talk about things that we're struggling with. We help each other out. We have all kinds of inside jokes. That's that philia love. There's eros, romantic love, which is Easy to understand, husband and wives, that's the love between a husband and a wife. There's storhe, which is the familial love, which is, would be the one you would want to preach about today. It's Father's Day, so the love for fathers and children, children to parents, cousins, aunts, uncles, all the family stuff, that's storhe. And then we have agape, which is a self-sacrificial love. Whenever Scripture's talking about um, the way Jesus loves us, how he died on the cross for us, um, how he sacrificed for us, it's talking about agape. And the word that Jesus uses here when he says, I tell you, love your enemies, he's saying, but I tell you, agapao your enemies. And so I think we can all tell that agapao comes from the root word agape. So he's talking about a self-sacrificial love, a love that isn't just like simple toleration. So when I was working with the youth a lot more, and we'd talk about love sometimes, and I would, sorry kids, I'm putting you on the spot. I'd say, okay, what does love look like? What does it mean to love someone? They're like, well, just not be mean to them or you know, say hi to them in the hallway maybe at school. And, um, well, these are not bad things to not be mean to someone. The love that, uh, that Jesus is talking about isn't just a, it's not a, it's a, it's a positive thing. It's a, it's demands action. It's not, I'm just not doing bad things to you, therefore I'm loving you. It is, I'm actively doing the good things to you, for you. So what does this enemy love look like? How do we love our enemies? Jump with me backwards to verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Again, this, this uh, antithetical statement. You've heard it said. Where does this come from? This comes from a few different passages in the Old Testament. And we have to think of the context of where these are, how these are coming to the Israelites. They've been enslaved for like 400 years. Imagine being enslaved for 400 years. If all of us, all of our ancestors, as far back as we could tell, 
had been enslaved. They'd been told when to eat, how to eat, how to make a house, how to clean things, how to, the proper way to farm, the proper way to do anything has been dictated to you by your, your oppressors the entire time. So if all of a sudden you were free, you're not really going to know how to do society if you left and you're not just free in that society where you still operate the same way. Like we think about Juneteenth and the way slaves were freed here. They were freed, but they were still in a society that had laws, that still had ways to operate. The Israelites were freed and then they left and they had their own thing and they had to figure out how do we do any of this stuff? How do we do justice? How do we do laws? And so God gave them these passages, Exodus 21, 24, or 23 and 24. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Leviticus 24, 19 through 20 says, If any man inflicts a permanent injury on his neighbor, whatever he has done is to be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And Deuteronomy 19, 21 says, Do not show pity for... Uh, do not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. So God's telling them, giving them this kind of legal system to say, okay, we're going to constrain justice to a certain box. So if, if someone did lop off my hand when we were out working in the field, I could not kill him for that. As much as I may want to, I wouldn't be allowed to do it. He was reining in the kind of vigilante justice that can happen when there are no rules, really, and you can do whatever you want. And Jesus is saying... Sorry, getting ahead of myself. And we know this is kind of happening because, I mean, you think about David. He killed a guy, but he did not get killed. Um, so this kind of justice is, these were boundaries for how to do things that weren't always enforced this way. But Jesus gives us a more excellent way. He says, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And this is like, super challenging for us because Jesus isn't giving you any conditions. He's not saying don't resist them unless X, Y, or Z. Don't resist the evildoer unless you have whatever reason you think is a good one. He's saying don't resist the evildoer. Some translations say don't set yourself against the evildoer or don't retaliate against the evildoer. The uh, English theologian N.T. Wright, he says, when he translates it, he says don't use violence to resist evil. And we think about this slapping on the cheek and um, why does Jesus talk about the right cheek? Well, most people throughout all of time, apparently, have been right-handed. So if I'm going to slap you, and you're right in front of me, and I slap you, what cheek am I hitting you with with my right hand? Your left cheek. So if I'm going to slap your right cheek, I have to give you the old backhand, one of these. Um, and that seems, I don't know, maybe you think, oh, you can get more power that way. Maybe you have a, a really good backhand in tennis or something, and I don't, terrible. But um, the... This is all because, again, context. This, this whole passage is really context, cultural context dependent. Um, so we have to think about the difference between an honor-shame culture and a guilt culture. So we live in what's called, sociologists call it a guilt culture, where I don't do a bad thing because I don't want to be found guilty. I don't necessarily don't do that thing because I think it's wrong or because I might look bad. I don't do it because I don't want to be caught. Um, I don't want my conscience to condemn me. I'm worried about the individual effects of what I do, not what would happen maybe to my friends and family. Like if I stole a candy bar, I'm not really worried about what happens to my parents or how they're viewed or um, my wife and how she's viewed based on my actions. But in an honor-shame culture, you are really worried about all of that stuff. You're motivated not by will I do a bad thing, but do, have, I, um, have I been shamed? So you're 
you're afraid of being ostracized from your society if, if you do a shameful thing. And we, you're willing to do an immoral thing to get that honor back. And we see this in um, some Middle Eastern countries still today where you hear about honor killings. And if you don't know what that is, like sometimes it'll happen where like a woman will maybe um, get pregnant out of wedlock or she um, commits adultery or something. And then her whole family is lumped in with this shame. So maybe her brother or her dad or both will go and kill her and they've now removed the shameful thing from the situation so their family can have honor again. So Jesus lived in that type of culture, and I don't know if that ever happened in, in biblical times. Maybe. I'm not sure. But he lived in this in culture where shame is a huge problem for you. So the backhand was not just a violence attack. It was also a shaming attack. It was a, a double insult. But Jesus tells us that our response is not violence. It's not trying to get our honor back. It's not trying to get justice. Um, so we say, well, how do we respond to these things? Um, Preston Sprinkle, he's a professor and uh, an author, he says um, that Christians are to respond with unconditional, inexplicable, shocking love, shocking agapao, that comes from being redeemed by a God who loves his enemies. We think about Jesus and how he loved us when we were his enemies. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, while we were God's enemies, he died for us. He didn't retaliate against us. He didn't crush us under his thumb like he would be absolutely right to do. He loved his enemies. The second example Jesus gives, he says, as for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. Another one that you read this, and in our modern day, you're like, okay, I'll give him a coat, and I'll go buy another one at any store that we can possibly go into. Um, But back in this time, coats or cloaks were like used as a collateral in lawsuits because they were so valuable. And it would be a big issue if you lost your coat because your coat could be your backpack or a blanket or a raincoat or a tent or uh, a bedroll that you have another blanket on top of. You could use it for all kinds of stuff. Um, I watched a YouTube video a while ago of a guy demonstrating how people in the medieval ages would use cloaks. And he had this like long brooch thing. It was like a stick this long. And he had his cloak and he was showing how if you put it this way, it's just like what you think, like kind of like a cape. But if you did it this way, it has a hood. And if you did it this way, it has no sleeves. And if you did it this way, it's a bag. And if you did it this way, it's a backpack. And it was all these different things. Cloaks were super versatile. They're very important. So if you imagine this scenario in a modern time, someone sues you for your bike and you say, and take my car as well. Um, it's, it's taking it up a whole, a whole level. Jesus is telling us to fight injustice with radical generosity. When someone's trying to take your not very valuable thing, give them something more valuable as well. And it's implied in this passage that this lawsuit's not a justified thing because none of these things, all of these things in this passage are, are not just. They're injustice towards us. So... I don't know if you've been watching in the news. Um, there's been this big trial. It's been like six weeks, two famous actors. Um, I didn't watch it a lot, but I saw clips, and I had people that I love very much that watched a whole lot of it. And um, it was very clear that one person seemed to be lying a whole lot about what was going on, and the other person wasn't really lying about it, but really wanted them to stop lying about it and sue them for a lot of money. Now, if the person who was lying, and I'm not going to name names because this is a sensitive topic in our culture today, um, if the lying person, they brought, this, they brought a, a lawsuit that was unjust, the way Jesus would have them respond is actor A wins the lawsuit, wins, I don't know how much this person won, $10 million, something insane. This person would say, oh, you, here's the $10 million. Also, my house, have this as well. That's how Jesus would want us to respond. Um, Preston Sprinkle again, he says of, of this passage that Jesus is calling us to, quote, 
drown them with generosity. I like that idea that you're giving them so much that they're just drowned underneath the weight of the generosity you're giving them. Verse 41, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Again, context, because someone's making me go for a walk. Oh, no. Um, but this is talking about the Roman soldiers, a common practice they would have. And, you know, they, co- they conquered, like, most of the known world at the time, right? Pretty much all of, all of Europe, down to Africa, over into Asia. Obviously, they didn't get across the pond over to us yet, but they, they conquered, like, a lot of it. And one thing they would do is the soldiers, you know, they have a backpack with swords and javelins and armor and bedrolls and food and pots and pans to cook it with, all this stuff. They have to carry it. Well, they don't want to carry it, which I get. Um, So they just pull some stranger off the street. You're standing outside watering your lawn, and the soldier says, come on, you're carrying my stuff for the next mile. You're not going to like that, one, because you don't want to do it anyway. You weren't planning on That's not your plan for the day. But two, this is an occupying force. If we think about, like, a modern-day thing, if a Russian soldier grabbed some Ukrainian woman off the street and said, you're taking my pack, you're carrying all this stuff for a mile. Um, instead of trying to kill their oppressors, which is something that people wanted to do, two of the apostles were zealots. These, this was a radical political faction that was, their whole thing was, let's kill Roman soldiers. And Jesus is talking to them, and he says, I know you hate those Roman soldiers. You want to kill those Roman soldiers. But if they make you carry their bag, and they ask you to do it one mile, you do it two. You double it. This is kind of the same idea of drowning them with generosity. And when we think about the distances, one mile doesn't seem so bad. Two miles doesn't seem so bad. But it's really two miles and four miles, because you're not going to just go with them for a mile and be like, oh, I live here now. This is my place. No, you have to walk back the mile you just came. Or two miles, oh, yeah, well, I guess I'll... My family, this is my place now, two miles away. No, you have to go back. Verse 42, I think, is the hardest because it's the most relatable for our context. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Again, he's not giving us any conditions. He's not saying, um, give to them unless you think they're going to use this money for something that isn't good. Give to the person who stands outside the liquor store unless you think they're going to buy booze with it and then don't give them money. Jesus is noting that this is an injustice, that they're probably not telling you the truth, that this person is probably taking advantage of you. But Jesus says, give to the one who asks from you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. All of these these things deal with injustice towards the believer. And in every instance we feel wronged, we have to remember that God has the only claim on justice, that God is the true and just judge of the entire universe, and he set up morality as a whole, he set up truth, and he's the one who's going to judge at the end of time. And Romans 12, 19 um, says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. God is a God of justice. I have found another quote um, from uh, a guy named Paul Carter from the Gospel Coalition Canada, and he said, by deferring concerns about personal vindication and recompense, the Christian is able to break the cycle of retributive, retributive violence and give testimony to his or her faith in the justice and mercy of God. I'm going to read that again. By deferring concerns about personal vindication and recompense, the Christian is able to break the cycle of retributive violence and give testimony to his or her faith in the justice and mercy of God. So now we know how to love our enemies. We go to verse 44, part B, and pray for those who persecute you. What kind of prayer are we supposed to pray? Pastor Preston a couple weeks ago talked about um, the... uh, imprecatory psalms, where David's praying, God, kill my enemies, wipe them off the face of the earth, make sure they don't have any descendants. But I'm not sure this is what God wants us to do with our enemies now. 
Because of how he shows us we have to love our enemies, I think God wants, to pray, God wants us to pray for our enemies' good, for our enemies' flourishing, for our enemies', our enemies repentance. Not saying, God, show them that I'm right and they're wrong, but God, turn their hearts to you so that they will come to realize that they're doing something wrong. And I don't have to show them. I don't have to be the one to prove it to them. So if we know what God wants and we know what it looks like, it's a next logical question to ask, but why? And verse 45 says, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This verse caused me to stumble too, because I'm like, oh, is this a, are you saying that if I don't do these things, I'm not a child of my Father in heaven? But God, you know I'm not perfect, and I'm not going to do all these things all the time. Um, but another way this could be translated is that um, so that you may become children of your Father in heaven, so that you may show yourself to be children of your Father in heaven. This is talking about our process of sanctification, that in doing these things, we become more like Jesus, that in doing these things, we show that we are becoming like our Father in heaven, and that by doing these things, we show the rest of the world who sees something completely different that show, tells us that violence is the answer to everything that happens to us. If something, someone wronged you, you can respond and you can escalate it. That if someone stole my bike, I can respond by taking it back and by beating them up, and that's okay. And we see these cycles all the time. Um, so no, he's not saying that you aren't a, a child of God if you don't do this, but that by doing it, you become more like our Father. We are called to image Jesus. All the time, the Bible talks about being like Christ, becoming like Christ. So we see Jesus loving his enemies. We see that God, um, his love is the same for his enemies as it is for the people that he already loves. The rain is falling on the good and the evil. The sun is shining on the evil and the good. And put whatever your enemy category is. The sun is shining on Michigan fans. The rain is falling on Ohio State fans. But the sun is also shining on Ohio State fans and shining on Michigan fans. It's the same across the board. Put anyone you want in there, Republican, Democrat, Russian, Ukrainian, uh, Houthi rebel, Yemen government, anyone. And the same can be said. God's loving those people the same. Verses 46 and 47, Jesus calls us to be different when he says, For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. So he's talking to a mostly Jewish crowd, and again, they don't like Rome. And a tax collector is collecting taxes for Rome. And it's not like we do now where the government already knows how much money you owe them, but you still have to do the math and tell them that you know how much money that you owe them. And then you give them this set amount, and it's calculated on your income. Tax collectors then just had a quota. They said, okay, i got to get 100 gold coins today, and I don't care who it comes from, whether you're poor, whether you're rich. doesn't matter. I'm going to get it. And any extra, that's how I pay myself. That's how I feed my family or enlarge my house or buy more cows or whatever they did. So they abused that all the time. And so they were not well loved. So when he's saying... Like, listen, even the tax collectors who you hate, who are despicable people, they already do this stuff, so if, you aren't, if you're only loving the people that love you, you're not any different than this person that you hate, um, that we're supposed to love. Um, and if you're only talking to the people in your group, if you're only being with the, your brothers and sisters, you're the same as the people, um, as the Gentiles, who at the time were considered the people who don't know God. These are people who do not have a relationship with God the Father, so why, why would you be doing the same thing as them when you have something more? And finally, Jesus calls us to be perfect. 
And again, I, I think about uh, Roger's sermon last week where he talked about God's omniscience, that God knows everything. He knows everything that's ever been and ever will be, um, every little secret that we have. So God knows clearly that we are not perfect. So obviously this passage is not saying that you have to do this, and if you don't, you're not a part of this, this group. He knows we're going to fall short of this. The Bible clearly talks about us all falling short, all of us missing the mark. But this is one last call for us to do better, to follow that, that better way. So practically, what do we do with this? And there's a lot of practical stuff in here, but some of it is like super contextualized to a first century Israel, um, and it's hard sometimes to grasp what that means. So I think the biggest point is that we are, loved to, we are to love our enemies by following the example of Jesus, to endure hardship and injustice, whether that's real or perceived, we endure it anyway. And I thought about, well, what enemies do we have today? Where are, do most people find their enemies? And I think a lot of it, if you man, log on to any social media platform for like a day and then do it again the next day, there's going to be one outrage one day and one the next day. We have this crazy culture where we're so polarized and we hate each other. But as Christians, we need to transcend that. We need to follow the, the better way, the, the way that Christ says, but I tell you, we need to follow that way and love our enemies. Especially, this year's an election year, folks. It's not going to get better as the year goes on. Um, so we need to be loving our enemies that we think maybe they just disagree with us on something. And Jesus says, love your Republican enemies and your Democrat enemies and anyone in between. We need to be loving the people that disagree with us just on whatever the thing is because God loves them just the same as he loves you and me and anyone else. And we pray for, when we pray for our enemies, that's going to change how we view them. I can speak to this firsthand because there have been people over the past couple of years that like they'll say something or they'll post something or they'll do something. And I'm just like, I just can't stand how they did that thing. I can't believe that that person said that thing and I'm so angry at them and I sit on it and I like to like think about things. And I don't know if you're like me, but like sometimes I'll be driving down the car in the car and I'll be thinking, well, if they say this, I'm going to say this. And then they'll say that, but I'll come back with this one. And then they'll say this, and I'll really get them with this point. And I, like, play out these arguments in my head that aren't real and aren't going to happen. But I like to pretend that they're happening to make me feel better. Be like, yeah, see, I'm right, and they're wrong, because they would say all this, and I would win the debate like that. Um, and so I've, had to start, I've started praying for those people, those people that I have my fake debates with, um, and praying for them by name. Because I think that when we do this, God is putting them... Into our, into our view in a different way. We're not looking at them as our enemy. When we are praying for them, and not just that God show them why I am right and they are very wrong, we're saying, God, show me how you love them just as much as you love me. Help me to love them the same way that you love me. When, we are, when we're done doing these things, when we're done loving our enemies, which you're never really done, but once we've done this, we've loved our enemies, when we've prayed for them earnestly and for their good, I think we'll find something that Pastor Preston pointed out a couple weeks ago, is that we don't really have any human enemies because we are loving them, we are praying for them, they are on the same level as us, being loved by a holy God who demands the same things from them as he demands from us. And the only enemies we really have are Satan, the adversary of God, and our sin. And our sin is what keeps us from loving our enemies. So we need to be praying for ourselves, too, because we can't do this stuff on our own. Like, I cannot love my enemies on my own. There are people that, you know the people, that they just get on your nerves and you just, like, you can't deal with that person. I can't do that on my own. I cannot deal with that person on my own. I need to pray for um, the help of the Holy Spirit to do this, too. Um, 
So this isn't going to be easy. The cruciform life, that's a word I really like, the life shaped by um, the cross of Jesus, the way that um, our life is formed to look like the, the life that Jesus did, had when he was dying on the cross, the cruciform life, is not a cakewalk. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says, um, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We're supposed to deny ourselves, deny our rightness, deny our own justice, deny our comfort or our pride or whatever it is that makes us not love our enemies. We need to deny those things and take up our cross and follow Jesus. So let's, uh, let's go forward and pick up our crosses together, loving our enemies.